I'm trying as hard as I can to give you your shit ending, guys, and you're doing everything you can to fuck it up. Like, <laughs> I could not be more grim dark if I t- I have like permanent black circles under my eyes. I have blood everywhere. Like, what more can I do to embody the grim dark ethos? And they're just oh like, God. I had the time of my I'm life. Of my life. <laughs> Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. I have explained this to you guys so many times. What is it now? This is the 52nd time we have to talk about it, only we don't have to talk about it. No spoiler warning necessary, bitches, because this is the finale. (laughs) 52 is not a prime number, but you deserve this episode, so here we are. But it is, a th- it's a prime number times four. It's 13 times four and there's four of us. So each of us is 13 and that's prime. Thank you, you Aaron. Well, holy <laughs> shit, Aaron. I mean, wow. <laughs> Dude, I thought you were an English professor. What the fuck? Yeah, and I, don't, I, mean, I can't do arithmetic. <laughs> Everyone just switch roles. Go. <laughs> no, that was very deep. There's only wow. and there's also four and there's also four seasons. So really, ah, we we mm. intended it from the beginning. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes, yeah. yeah, so we planned out our podcast as well as they planned out this show. <laughs> 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 well, considering Beep and I were just laughing that we thought that this podcast was going to be fourteen episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the we very thought- original document that was prepared for this this uh, podcast for people. For our friends to sign up, had it broken down into 14 episodes. Oh my God, I remember that. (laughs) That was like 18 months ago. (laughs) (laughs) It's like SpongeBob, 18 months later. (laughs) Oh, Beep, who's even talking right now? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, this is Beep. I am recording near Atlanta. You can find me on Twitter at Beepsplain. Sometimes it's... Well, it's always me, but I'm not always there. Anyway, I am joined, as always, and for the last time, by the lovely Cece. Oh, God, why did you say that? <laughs> that made me so sad. <laughs> um, I, I am recording from Washington, D.C. You can find me on Twitter at A capital check. And we say welcome back to two of our very faves, Dark Amy. Oh, that's me. Um, yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Amy. <laughs> I'm recording from the eastern Washington area of the Tri-Cities, Richland, whatever. No one cares where I'm from. You're recording you from can- the east of the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you can find me on the Twitters at Rob, and I'm always there. And we also have back our lovely Professor Aaron. Hello, I'm Erin. I'm recording from Oxford, Mississippi. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at rebloggingHood, but I'm on private and I'm not coming off, so you can find me there, but can't really <laughs> do anything about it. <laughs> I 
mean, you can request to follow, but I, I'm not guaranteeing that I'm going to approve it. Um, wow. Private club wow. of you guys. <laughs> Look, I've had some experiences. Uh, I'm a little bit little bit uh, wary of strangers at present. Um, also, I just have to say for the record, I'm really disappointed in that that neither Beep nor Cece, either of you said, and I am the last Beep that I will ever be. Or the last CC that I'll ever be. Oh, I was going to say this is the last podcast I'll ever be, but now I'm just like sad times three. Thanks a lot, Aaron. <laughs> the last outline that it'll ever be when she sent this podcast. Aww. You guys, we haven't started. the time yeah. of my life. Oh, man. This, this, this is all going to be <laughs> such a problem. <laughs> For the next two hours. The next, the next two hours? Are you sure two about hours? that? Like, seriously? Or like for the first episode. Yeah. Yeah. If you came here for coherent discussion, go back and listen to the last episode with Terry Metalis, <laughs> Stephen Martin, and Drew Nichols. I know. We, we've sounded so quasi-professional for <laughs> the last couple episodes and maybe people <laughs> didn't forget maybe they forgot what we're really like um but, what if we're like that that thing like people are gonna be like wow that show really went downhill fast <laughs> 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 at least know, we're not jumping this right? until our last episode <laughs> all this all we've spent we spent two years talking about the importance of finales and we're just gonna fuck up our own finale that's great <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's very 2020 though it's very 2020 so i think it's true i mean you had to know when you brought me on it was going to be a total clusterfuck so i don't know why they keep inviting me back but here i am well i'm so glad like aaron you, you i was trying to think back you did one of our very first podcasts all the way back in season one um if yes. people were remembering you taught us all about frankenstein and all the parallels with jones that's right yes and also um olivia Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Amy, I think your first episode that you did with us was Bodies of Water um, with the Jennifer and Cassie road trip. So specifically for yeah. Tom Noonan. Yes. yes. I was going to say, what was my expertise that I brought? Aaron brought like Frankenstein and all that kind of shit. And then I brought on my affection for Tom Noonan. So I own it. I'll own it. It's mine. And, and your excellent parallels to Buffy. And the leftovers. So stop it. So, yeah. So we wanted to bring you guys back because um, we just, given all that we have like yelled and flailed about all of like episodes going back to season one, I don't know. For me, it just felt really wrong not to have a full out fangirl flail for this series finale. <laughs> so <laughs> we must finish our cycle yes <laughs> <laughs> all right so the first thing before we dive into and and we are going to be discussing the beginning parts one and two today um directed and written by terry metallis i wanted you know you guys were watching this this like you guys just watched this finale we're talking about this two years after it aired. Um, and we've also lived through since, since the, since 12 monkeys finished a lot of big endings, um, in pop culture, both on television and film. Um, some of them went okay. Some of them really didn't. And so <laughs> <laughs> I wanted, I just wanted to hear sort of like your big picture thoughts. Um, two years later, why do you still love this finale? 
why I still love the finale after two years. Well, like in comparison to the shitty finales you just referenced, like this is one of the few finales to me that feels like it's complete, like in it finished and you can walk away feeling completely satisfied, no matter what character that you, you know, was your favorite or like they managed to, even with secondary characters, like give them a moment. And it's so rare that a, fin- a finale can like achieve that and, and not feel like it was just like boxes being like ticked off of like all the things that, you know, like, oh, we took care of that, took care of that. Like it, it still felt organic and with the whole story, but also gave everyone closure. And it's that it's weird to say that an ending giving closure is like rare, but it feels pretty rare these days. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say I, I agree. And sort of like, cause I was thinking about this as what, makes a finale really work or not work for me anyway, personally has less to do with like wrapping up loose ends or plot and more to do with emotional payoff. Um, and I think, you know, this is not to say that like, like what, like this, this is a finale. 12 monkeys is a finale that does both. And obviously like, the very best ones do both, but like for me, it's always sort of like, I'm, so willing to, you know, like let go of some plot or loose end quibbles if a finale gives me real emotional closure or payoff for the characters that I've, you know, that we sort of come to care about and and their journeys through the seasons. And so like, I think recently, um, the most recent finale that really also fit those criteria, particularly like the emotional criteria for me was She-Ra which like really same kind of thing, like really um, sort of knocked it out of the park in terms of uh, giving, giving every character kind of, and every relationship, it's moment, it's space, it's payoff, you know? Um, and it's not even, it doesn't even necessarily have anything to do. I would say with it being those being happy endings per se um, so much as just, it feels like, you know, the characters have, have moved from one place to another kind of emotionally and psychologically and personally, and that the place that they've wound up feels real. Like, I think another finale that I thought was really good that like worked really well emotionally um, from a very, very different show was Breaking Bad, which has like a pretty fucked up ending, you know, but like it, it, it felt satisfying and right not in the vengeance sort of spoilers for spoilers for breaking bad. So if you haven't watched it and you don't want to be spoiled, skip ahead a few seconds, but you know, so, so Walter white, the sort of main character also like the whole, the whole show is about his sort of like descent into sort of becoming this really evil person. And he dies at the end. And it's not like, it wasn't a sort of like, Oh, thank God they killed the villain. It was the thing that made that ending feel emotionally satisfying is that he chose to sacrifice himself and that he admitted like early in the episode, he admitted that to what he had done and why he had done it. And basically he, you know, they had done these evil things, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, there was like an emotional closure there for him. And then for his wife who said that, and then for, you know, Jesse Pinkman's character who managed to escape. And so this is kind of like, it doesn't have to be like super happy. Yay. Everything's okay. But it has to feel like sort of the emotional payoffs are all there. And I think that's what kind of makes a good ending for me. And that's what makes this a really satisfying ending is getting to see all those characters and where they wind up and feel like they've sort of like arrived in a place where you 
where you hoped they would be and that makes sense for them. Right. I think you touched on something important where it's not necessarily like answering questions um, yeah. so much the plot where it's characters. It's, it's the character journey that you followed and, and where it ends and if that's satisfying and, and not necessarily where the story takes you. I mean, the story, yeah, it's important because it's the character journey, but it matters. I think in the end is your emotional connection with the characters. And if they, the character get a satisfying ending, not if the story is all tidied up and, and all cute with a nice little bow. Yeah, exactly. And I think like in this case, to use a controversial example, for me, like the finale of Lost works. Like I've, I've watched Lost one time. I'm not like a super fan or anything like that. I actually, I'm sort of like, like my opinion about Lost is I feel like super controversial because I'm like, it was fine. Um, but like, I, I like the finale of Lost um, because for me, it very, it satisfyingly paid off the characters and their relationships. Even though, you know, if you're, if you're watching, if you look at Lost as like a, that puzzle box show, you know, or has all these mysteries, then yeah, the ending is really frustrating because they like did not resolve any of the mystery. You know, like I, it, yeah. My mm-hmm. apologies to Joe Garfine, but like I, <laughs> the the ending does like well, the way that they land with the pathology does not seem to actually make any sense whatsoever, except emotionally. <laughs> and emotionally, to me, it was great. Like I was lovely. That last image of the all of them together. Like I don't know where the fuck they are or what happened, and I don't care because I'm like happy that they're all together and that the moral of the story is like these people are connected and the important thing is the connection and like that, like that felt like very sort of, that felt like a thread that was born out through the entire show. So like, whatever, I don't care about the polar bears that never got explained. Who cares? You know, like it's the, the emotional care. part of it that we're, <laughs> I they told you that you should care for a long time. So like, I understand being I unable about- to forgive that. The I, did also, I will say my my experience of that is is f- definitely shaped by the fact that I watched it years and years later and I already knew going in that stuff wouldn't pay off so I was able to like I never expected it so I wasn't mad when it didn't so that helps too but anyway yeah. <laughs> that makes sense <laughs> that makes sense yeah, yeah. I, I didn't like the lost finale and it's it's really weird because no. guess what Tina I'm gonna make a leftovers reference <laughs> 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 it's it's because both Lindelhoff was you know he did look lost and then he did the mm-hmm. leftovers and the leftovers also kind of like ends with an open-ended kind of um question to what the mystery was but like the title song was let the mystery be they didn't answer that ever really or you can think that they did but it was two characters two main characters their arcs got like finalized and Mm. even though some of the bigger mysteries didn't get answered that people wanted like what happened to the two percent of the people who disappeared and why did it happen like we don't know people die Mm -hmm. and it happens um two characters that you followed in their journey through their grief and their loss they did have like their ending and um and it's kind of it the, the leftovers and the 12 monkeys finale kind of end almost the same way where it's these two characters that love each other and they find each other and they kind of get their happy ending in a way in the end but also it leaves with this big question of whether or not for the 12 monkeys you know, are they in the 12th, you know, the red forest or not, you know, did Cassie hit the button or, or didn't she? And it's left up to the viewer to decide and 12 monkeys um, and the leftovers, sorry, the same thing. You're left to decide whether or not Nora is telling the truth about um, 
sorry, spoilers, anyone who didn't watch. (laughs) (laughs) But if she like went to the other side where the departed are, or if she like went and came back, like whether or not her story that she tells Kevin at the end is true. So they both end on kind of like this, this, I wouldn't say cliffhanger so much, but this, this where the audience gets to decide this ambiguous ending, whether or not they believe a character did a female character of that did what um, they did to get her happy ending. Yeah. And I think there's a, you know, I've been thinking about this more and more over the years, you know, as a number of major uh, properties and (laughs) less major properties, like totally with their endings in various ways um, that, you know, there's so much of the way that we, so much of the way that we process our lives is through storytelling. You know, the stories that we tell ourselves about our lives so that we tell ourselves about other people's lives. And so the stories we consume, you know, we like, as we watch them, we are, we are processing them emotionally, you know, and like, I haven't watched the leftovers, but I've, I've heard Amy talk about it. And a lot of other people talk about it. And like, you know, I think that's probably a good example of a show that is both about and kind of um, enacts and takes the audience through the, the, the sort of narratively processing grief and loss, right? Like, so, so there is a certain, there's a kind of emotional catharsis that happens in good storytelling and with a good ending Um you know, and I think achieving that emotional catharsis is what really, really makes a good ending, you know, that sort of feeling of like, release. <laughs> um, yeah. And and again, like, it's sort of to go back to like the classical drama theory, like the idea of, of, um, I think it's like this Aristotelian idea of, um, of tragedy is that tragedy like the pleasure of tragedy is catharsis like you get to the end and it ends like you know sort of everybody's dead or whatever right like everything is destroyed but the sort of the the satisfaction um of that is the sort of way it it becomes possible for the audience to achieve emotional catharsis um through watching those events unfold and so yeah so it doesn't have to be like it's not like you know, like if you watch 12 Monkeys and get to the end and you choose to believe that Cassie didn't halt the countdown, you know, like I completely disagree. And like, I don't care. I can't. I, I don't know why anybody would want to believe that. But like the, for someone, there are viewers out there for whom that is that has more meaning and has more catharsis for them. And I think that 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 kind of open ended ending, that openness to interpretation is really can be really powerful and can be really um, important, you know, if it's, I think it's really hard to pull off, um, you know, in a way that doesn't just feel like a cop-out, um, but it can, it can be a special kind of meaningful. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, obviously, all of what you guys are saying, but you can also tell, I think, from in front of the screen, how the people behind the screen felt about it. Yeah, that's very true. And you can tell if it was crafted with care or if it was slapped together as like an afterthought, to, which this is most definitely not. Like like you said, Aaron, I'm I'm fine leaving some things hanging. Lost did not work for me. I, I knew going in the bunch of stuff wasn't going to pay off. And also I was never like heavily invested. So many grains of salt. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've talked about this on the pod too, but everything has just become this edgelord 
torture porn, how bad can we make it, let's kill everybody, like as if that's some sort of, it's like the idea of subverting a happy ending, but it's been going on for so long now that it's not a subversion anymore. It's just lazy writing. And I think that you can tell. I mean, even if you don't like every episode or a finale, I mean, finales are hard. It's very difficult to end a story satisfactorily. But you can tell if someone practiced care and concern for their characters or not. And when you can tell they don't, I'm usually not on board. And for this one, it's like, I was fine with a more bittersweet ending than we got. I was fine with it because it followed the characters. It was true to their journeys. And as Aaron was saying, they have to reach a certain point, not necessarily so that they end up exactly where I want them to be, so much as that their arc has consistency and coherence. And that's not to say that you can't go forward in some areas and back in some others and stumble and things like that, but there needs to be some kind of growth. It all just needs to make sense. There needs to be, I think, care and coherence. To pick up on what Beep was just saying, I also think, you know, the care, you know, it's it's one of those things like the the finale, the payoff only works if the care has been present all along, because I think so much of of the thing things paying off well in the finale depends on you having taken care in going through all the steps to get the characters in the story where you want them to be in the finale. Um, you know, because I'm just thinking of like of Game of Thrones last year. And again, this is something where like I'm this is my outsider I didn't watch, but I've watched Twitter watch, right? Um <laughs> and and something like, you know, like Jamie's ending where he goes back and dies with his sister, right? That's the kind of thing where it's like you can imagine a version of the story in which, you know, Jamie's story is a tragedy and he kind of like, he goes, he goes so far, right? And at the last minute, the kind of like that, 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 that pull, that like core pull inside of him back to his sister wins out and he goes back to her and dies with her. I could, I could imagine a version of that story where it was a tragic ending, a really sad ending, but where it worked, where it made sense. But it seemed like the way that they did it, it was frustrating because it didn't make sense. It was like everything was going one way. And then like, because they rushed through things, then he was like, well, never mind, I'm going back to die with my sister. You know, so it was like the care has to be taken with every single step along the way. Right. Yeah. They took yeah, they took a lot of shortcuts, I think. I think that's what failed like Game of Thrones is in that in their final season, because it wasn't just the finale. I think it was the the final season and the yeah, setup. Exactly. They took so many shortcuts with characters where it was going on this like natural kind of journey and, and this long journey, and then all of a sudden they just decided that uh, we're going to give you like a cliff notes version of what this final season should be, just to get the characters to where we think their ending is going to be in the finale. And it made no sense because it, it it did. It felt like you were getting like this spark notes, cliff notes version of like Jamie's hero's journey in game of Thrones, where mm-hmm. he felt like he flipped back to what he was in like seasons, like one through three on a dime. And that's the thing in which like 12 monkeys paid off is they didn't short change or shortcut any of their characters journeys to get to what the finale was. Like they gave you the full arc. They gave you the full picture and they eased you into it. And so when you like got to that final push, it was, it, it all like made sense. And, and I like going back to what Pete was saying about 
you didn't necessarily have to end it really happy to really satisfy character arcs in 12 Monkeys because even for me, without like that, that final coda that you get, that, that epilogue where everyone, you know, does get like quote unquote a happy ending, you could have ended it just with that final scene with Jones and Cole and him going in, you know, and, and that and him going in the machine knowing that he's, you know, sacrificing himself to time so everyone gets their their lives back. I actually would have been great with that ending. Like that made mm-hmm. sense for Cole's arc that if it happened and that was the end, I would have been as satisfied as I am with what they did. So I think that owes a lot and to what Aaron was saying is the care that the creators have given to these characters in their arcs. You can tell that the writers and the directors and the editors love and care this sh- about the show and about these characters and about how this ends. Like it mattered to them. It, it wasn't just another job and they weren't just focused on what their next job was. They really cared about how they ended this journey, not just like for the characters and themselves, but also they honored the audience as well. Yeah. yeah. It's so funny. Like as I was listening, as I'm listening to you guys say this, I- I'm thinking, so, so many different properties have you know, whiffed on their endings. And in this series finale, we get three excellent endings. <laughs> in a row. Yeah. <laughs> in a row that you would have been like, it ends with Cole's, Cole's ultimate sacrifice and the world turns blue, the end. That's great. It ends with the epilogue and the bittersweet they remember, but they can never all be together and see you soon. That's great. Then you get the coda where it's like, no, he gets to live. And you're like, that's great. Right. And then you get a choice on top of that, that you have, uh, you know, you can choose to interpret it. I, I think one makes, you know, we'll get to it. I think one makes more sense on screen than the other, but you have an opportunity to sort of have, as Aaron was saying, a catharsis, sort of a, a choose your own adventure for whatever sort of has more meaning to you. It's really, I think, also masterful to have crafted the character of Cassie such that whichever ending you choose, they both are completely coherent. You yeah. know, like that, that she has a character arrived in a moment where like genuinely, you know, there was equally potential for her to make either choice, you know, like I, I, yeah, like I, I, I think that they, that like either one is at least in terms of like the Cassie, Cassie standing there, you know, like you flip a coin 10 times and you get five of each because that's truly where she's at. And like, that's, that's like hard to do, but I also just think about like, there are a lot of twists in these episodes, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's, and and there's never a twist where that feels cheap, you know, like like the the sort of twist um, of Cole being spit back out because Jones reprogrammed, you know, like modified the program. Um, like the first time I watched it, I, I did not see it coming. But it's one of those things like as soon as it happens, like, of course, that's the choice that Jones would make. You know, it's like entirely in keeping with all the little pieces of her character that have been built into the story, not only in these episodes, you know, like we have the, like the direct seed in these episodes of Ethan, um, you know, the encounter that she had with Ethan, but like, even before that, you know, like this, that was Jones's journey, you know, like the Jones of the beginning of the series would not have made that choice. Um, So, yeah. So it's just like, when you have, when you've done the work all along carefully and with 
you know, respect and attention and love for the story and all the characters, then it's like amazing what you have, the what you can do, what you can pull off when you get to the end. Yeah. And the thing is, is all, all, I agree with everything that you all have said. And yet they did all of those things while answering uh, like a laundry list of mythology questions, which which we've all said, like, you know, we've all said we don't necessarily need, right? If you nail the rest of, you know, character arcs or themes or you have a catharsis or things feel earned. And yet they did all of those things while answering all of these questions down to the corpse or where Jones got her cigarettes, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> meticulously in a way that... Sometimes I'm like, this is, I spent almost 20 years of watching like mythology, like big sprawling mythology genre television for like 20 years, right? From like Alias to Battlestar to Lost and all of it. And I'm like, this was the show I was waiting for. (laughs) It was like, (laughs) this is the show that answered all of those questions. So it lifts the burden of even like, like worrying about any of that because it's all answered and and yet there's still things to interpret and there's still character arcs and there's still, you know, I mean, I think even if they had answered all of those questions and they did that, you know, the wonderful job that they did with all the characters, I don't know if I would have been talking about it for two years if, if it didn't thematically have something um, truly of like depth and substance to say. Um, yeah. and you know, and for, so for me, the, you know, love cannot be undone and, and the happily ever now, the, the idea, I mean, and, it, and it's those two, like, you know, I'm just quoting from the show, but the way the whole finale thematically is about people not giving up people caring about one another and being able to do extraordinary things in the face of ridiculously terrible odds. And then it mattering, not only to like the world, but to each other. I I just think that the show struck a balance of being both very clear-eyed about human nature and about what motivates people for good or for bad, and yet is still incredibly hopeful tagging on to what you're saying, obviously they did something special in this finale because um, I can speak for myself and, and maybe Aaron and as well, like I didn't get into this show until it was finished and CC and Beep were the ones like after the finale was live, were like you have to go back and watch this show. That was the most amazing not just finale, but overall four season story arc that was complete and total that you have to watch it. Like I'm here watching this, loving this show because you guys watched the finale and and watched the whole thing. And we're like, this is amazing. This is something special. This is not just guys, I watched a good show and I totally recommend it. Like they did something really special and unique. And, and that is a lot how they ended their story. Like, I'm here, basically, because of how well they ended the story. Definitely. 100% yeah. same. 100%. Yeah. And then there's other stories that I loved for years. And I'm never going to go back. I'm never going to go back and rewatch Game of Thrones. <laughs> and I, I read all those books. I, I mean, I'm never, never going to do it. You know? So one of the things I absolutely love about this finale 
is that I don't have to defend it. Mm. Yeah. I've not seen a p- single person watch it who was like, well, that was hot fucking garbage. Oh my God, that's true. Well, except I, okay, I, I did get into a fight on Reddit, but go go ahead. That doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like it's on you for being on Reddit. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, Reddit does not count at all. The thing that somebody said, the only thing that somebody said on Reddit, and I'd had, I don't know, maybe three glasses of wine and I didn't take it kindly, um, was basically, and, and I, I will admit, I have not seen Dark, um, the German time travel show with a very suspiciously similar marketing campaign for their final season that involves like an Ouroboros and all kinds of stuff. And I've heard that it's great, but I, but basically there was somebody on Reddit basically saying that because 12 Monkeys has a happy ending, it couldn't possibly, it, it basically that it couldn't possibly therefore rise to a level of greatness, which that kind of bullshit. Shut up. Shut up. I, I mean, that's exactly the bullshit that I would expect from Reddit. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what pissed me. That's what pissed me off because the thing, is, the thing about this finale is that they they do exactly what they told you that they were going to do in season one, that, that they were like, that Cole was going to have to be erased. Now, was it quite the way you thought he was going to be erased? Right. And Jones is able to like, I'm sorry, but if you accept that Jones invented time travel, um, I think you can accept that. I think you should be able also be able to accept that she revised a code. Like, I, I just don't like, I don't understand when f- fanboys on Reddit are like, I accept the premise of time travel and I accept the premise of the red force destroying time, but I cannot accept that she was able to alter a computer code. Like I, that, I just, uh, that people in the 1400s wrote with like, I just am like, it's fiction and you bought in to all of these other science fiction uh, I mean, parts if you of the can, story. The, the, if you can accept the, like the vests, which pop up out of nowhere and are never like explained <laughs> other than like, wow, cool. They made time travel vests. Like I love them. They're a great plot device, but like you, you really have to just be like, got it. We're just rolling with it. Like if, yeah. you're, if you're not going to nitpick those, then like you don't get to nitpick Jones Dude, all you're rewriting saying, some computer code. Yeah, all <laughs> all you're all you're saying is you don't like happy endings. That's yeah. all you're well, saying. Yeah, if you're if you're got a hard on to have an unhappy ending to Twelve Monkeys, they give you an out for that. You can just yeah. assume that Cassie didn't stop the countdown, and it's, it's the Red Forest is what in Olivia's words are, or not Olivia's words, but I think Jones's words is an infinite hell on earth by her design, meaning Olivia's design. Like if you choose to have a really shitty ending for everyone, you can just assume that Olivia won. They're all in the red forest and they're all going to go through this loop of madness. So, you know, like pick your poison. There you go. Edgelord. You can enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) With that, let's jump into, let's jump into the beginning. Um, this is the last time that I'm ever going to be able to yell, but it's Ethan and it's Jones. It's her great grandson. Like it's his great grandmother. And I'm so glad that later in this finale, Jennifer has my back of being like, that's his granny. Because this, this scene, um, is insane because neither of them know who they are to one another. 
Um, which is a really funny place to be at the end of the show with all of these reveals, right? Like everybody finally, you think that everybody finally knows who, the, who they were and what they meant to one another, like in terms of blood ties. And you open up with Ethan <laughs> talking to Jones. <laughs> and the thing I love sort of about how, you know, that I realize when you go back and rewatch it is they open the two um they open a finale called the beginning with not only the beginning of the mission which some of that footage of jones walking through um with the flashlight into raritan for the first time is actually um from the pilot but also with cassie's recording and it sets up two major things that are going to be answered at the end um, why this conversation is significant beyond what Ethan and Jones mean to one another. And also to remind you of this recording that started the whole thing um, and that we have pieces missing from it, which we probably haven't thought about for a really long time. You know what I mean? Like that was such a big deal in the beginning of season one, but it had been a while since we had thought about Cassie's recording. I apologize if this is obvious to other people, but one of the things... <laughs> One of the things that I have a question about is where in Ethan's story does this scene take place? Um, and I, <laughs> I spent a lot of time going back and rewatching the um, scenes from Thief when um, Ethan went back to visit Cassie and Cole, um, and then also the scenes at the end of Witness of the series three of the season three finale when he is about to return to Titan after his time with Jennifer. And I spent a lot of time focusing on James Callis's like facial hair growth because that's the only marker that you is have. Is Beardgate like- a thing yet? Like the, the Beardgate, or <laughs> because he has more of a beard when he's in when he's in. <laughs> This sounds crazy when he's in thief and going back and talking to Cassie and Cole, but he's much more clean shaven after he's been shot. Um, and he goes back to Titan. I don't know when it takes, when this takes place. I, I am based on sort of the way he's acting and his beard growth. I think this is taking place around the time of before he has sort of after Eliza has died and, around the time that he was visiting Cassie and Cole, but before he ultimately met up in the season three finale. Does that make sense? Like with Cassie and Cole and got shot. The only reason why I'm like uh, pedantically focusing on it is because to me, it's just the question of what does Ethan know at that point? Like, does he know that he's not the witness? Does he know Olivia's the witness? Is he having a conversation with Jones after having just recovered from being shot by her? So that's sort of like why I I think for the purposes of our discussion, we're going to assume that this took place around the time of Thief um, when he was visiting his parents and not right before he returns to Titan and has spent the time with Jennifer. But if we're wrong, I'm sorry. So obviously the really important thing that he says to Jones, um, he, I think it's interesting, even, even if we don't know quite when this occurs on Ethan's timeline, what we do know is that he was raised by army of the 12 monkeys and Sebastian. He knows everything that Jones is going to do. He knows that she'll be successful. That's why he knows about the test subjects. And so, you know, he knows that she's going to be, that she's going to do what she's setting out to do. But he's also, when he tells her that sort of 
what we will learn is so important, save the one. And he says to do nothing like would be like killing her yourself. I understand that better than most. Obviously, that's about Eliza. It, it's both tragic, but it's also, um, I think, beautiful that that from that loss and the pain of that loss is is the seed of this idea that Jones will remember, and that is what is going to save his father. I mean, first of all, James Callis can read a phone book in that scene, and it's like believable and emotional. Like there's something about <laughs> the way he speaks in his acting that I'm I'm locked in. Like I am just riveted. Like I just I just wanted to get that out there how much I love James. I love mm-hmm. you, James. He yeah. is so he's so soulful. Like he's got, I don't know, otter eyes. Just <laughs> <laughs> Yo, when he says that I I understand better than most, you know, the way he delivers that line, I mean, obviously as the audience, we know what he's talking about, but it's almost like you don't even need to, right? Like it hits. Um, yeah. And he does look an awful lot like Cole, like in that, like how his hair is, the beard and stuff like that. It's kind of creepy how much he looks like his father, quote unquote. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I, I wanted to talk about one of the things that is when you go back and sort of you rewatch the pilot and which I did just to kind of prepare for this and remember sort of what Jones what you realize later that Jones knows, Jones is having this conversation with Ethan, having already experienced that interaction with Cassie and Cole in Paradox. So she knows time travel will work. She knows that she'll be successful, um, which is always one of those things that like when you see this version of Jones, I have to like remind myself of that. Um, but I wanted to kind of circle back spend, and I love Aaron that you're on for this because we spent a lot of time in season one talking about sort of the ubris of Jones, um, and, and kind of tying in those Frankenstein themes. And what Ethan says to her is like, this is awfully selfish of you. Like this world is, and who are you to say that it'll be any different? Um, and it's kind of reminding us of sort of that early arc of Jones and kind of this essential part of her, right? Like it is Ubris, right? This whole project. And, and now we know that the world is because of what she did. I think, you know, it's interesting that they quote Henry the fourth with heavy lies, the crown, and it's, you know, it's a crown that Jones has like claimed for herself, <laughs> you know, like she's basically like, I have the power to do this. So I'm going to do it. Um, and it's, you know, she thinks it's heroic, but Ethan is calling her out and basically being like, you know, I know why you're doing this. You're doing this for your daughter. Um, and isn't that selfish? But I think, I don't know. You know, I think there's, that line is so interesting. Um, awfully selfish of you just to save one daughter because the way that you understand the meaning of what he says the first time, you know, in when you're watching the scene at the beginning of the beginning versus the way you understand the meaning of what he says at the very, very end of the end, I think is almost flipped, you know, because when he first says it, you know, we can, you sort of, you sort of receive it straight, you know, that, that he is saying it's selfish. It's awfully selfish to, of you just to save one daughter. Um, but ultimately, you know, that sort of like desire to save the one 
to save one person. Um, and his line about when you have, you know, when you can choose the one, always, always choose it. That winds up being what Jones does, right? And that winds up being, you know, like there, you could say that there's a tremendous amount of hubris in Jones modifying the code written by primaries, you know, with instructions from time itself to fix, mm-hmm. you know, to fix yeah. the universe. <laughs> like yep. her sort of like be going in and being like, you know what? I'm just going to like tweak this a little bit. Like that takes tremendous hubris. Yeah. Um, and and you could say that it is tremendously selfish for her to tinker with that program solely for the purpose of preserving the existence of somebody, you know, or like sort of or bringing back the existence of somebody that she loves. When they shouldn't technically exist. When they shouldn't all. technically exist. Yeah. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, you know, like given the outcome, given the love that we as an audience have for Cole, that all the characters have for Cole, you know, the importance that he as a person, not he, not, not, not Cole as the djinn or as the demon or as, you know, the cause for time travel, but Cole, the person who lived and was important to, you know, in other people's lives who had connections with people. um, That's, that's the one that she chose that's what she that's what she was trying to save and she wasn't saving him for herself you know she was saving him because i mean i guess you know on some level because she loves him but not just because she loved him and not just because because it's not that like she was going to go live in this world without cole and like and and be grieving for him all the time right so so is it really selfish always to Try to save the people you love whose existences are meaningful to you. I think that winds up being kind of an interestingly an open question. Yeah. And if it is selfish, is that selfishness always necessarily bad? Right. Yeah, because she managed both. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's what I think is so fascinating about this conversation and what Jones ultimately does. Because obviously Jones's character arc is she does learn humility, right? She does feel deeply the consequences of her actions morally and emotionally. She does come to love um, like her found family um, and, and, and to open up emotionally, right? Like if we think back to sort of the beginning of season four, when she's talking to herself and she's seeing like how much she's changed, right? Um, On the other hand, this show has always threaded for all of its characters and it's even, you know, and it's going to set up its final, um, you know, uh, climax with Cassie that it is one, these constant dilemmas of one versus 7 billion and forcing people into these, you know, awful dilemmas of the one person that they love is balanced on the other side of 7 billion people. And what Ramsey and what other people had called Jones out on throughout season one is like, you know, this is about your daughter. It just happens to be that those 7 billion people align with your daughter as opposed to somebody who was like in a position like Ramsey where it didn't, right? Yeah, she um, just has a convenient argument. And she called herself out on that, right? It's not like, more noble. Yeah, she, yeah. She, yeah. And so, but what I think is so interesting is that her, this conversation recalls that original Ubras of inventing time travel to save her daughter. And 
and then ends the story with her potentially risking how well the code works. I mean, who knows, right? She didn't know. It, she's taking, it's a gamble. It's a gamble to, to, to tinker with it, to save Cole, right? Like you still kind of wonder, right? Even Cole at the end is like, but how does that work? How, how is that not messing with everything that we were told by the primaries? And it's just- And Jennifer know, basically says like, oh, I mean, time was like, eh, we'll give you this one. You know, right. like there was actually, like time was aware that it was being fucked with and just decided to like, let you get away with it this time. Right. <laughs> we'll oh, let yeah, you have- that's fair. Okay. That's yeah. Fair. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, and you know, so I just think it's a really. I mean, the, the episode title, the beginning. Obviously, we're looping around in full circle in so many ways for so many characters and the story and the mythology. But I think, in in some ways, you could argue that you kind of do for Jones as well. Like as much character growth as she undergoes. She's still at her core, that scientist who has that ubris that she's going to risk it, right? She can do it. I can change it. So I'm going to. And I just think that that's a really interesting place for her character to end up because there's growth, but she's still fundamentally Katarina Jones. And if she can mm-hmm. change it, she's going to. All right. That takes us to the I am owed scene. This scene hurts a lot for me, and I think the acting all around the table is phenomenal. Tell me your big picture thoughts. This this hurts. This I mean, obviously, it hurts for everybody, but I I have a special you know place in my heart for Jennifer, and I hate that she feels like the catalyst of all this. Mm. Like because she, you know, was in that room and scribbling her hands bloody and whatever, then she finds out. Okay. I mean, that was the answer all along. It's not like she made the answer, but you know, it turns out that for them to quote unquote win, they have to like sorely lose. Right. It's just, it's kind of brutal. Yeah. It's really devastating. And like Cole really kills me in that scene too, because of how, how resigned he is to it. Mm. You know, it's just like, it breaks my heart that, you know, of everybody in the room, he's the one who's just kind of like, yep. That seems right. He's so. having to like comfort other people. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Erasure from existence. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you guys, like, he is so fucking tired. Oh, right? my God. he's just, he's so tired. Yeah. I mean, and thing- like, I like, like you pointed out, Tina, like, this is, that is the fate that he has been sort of preparing himself for since the beginning. You know, it is kind of like a, loop back around to the start again, you know, in the sense of like, he started out on the, on the premise that if his mission worked, this him would sort of, would cease to exist, right? Like everything would be erased and, uh, and, and that him would never exist. And he accepted that. And then like kind of over time, he started to hope for something else, but this sort of feels like, Oh no, never mind. You know, it was always going to end with me being erased. That was always the way it was going to be. Yeah, so now it's every version of him. Yeah, yeah, right. Except now, like, he will never exist even as a child. It's not <laughs> well, a yeah. reset. It's just, like, a straight erasure. Like, woof. Yeah. Right? I mean, he said it, right? They foreshadowed it. He said, you know what's going on in Cole's head, because in Demons, he said, there is a fate worse than death, never having existed at all. Mm-hmm. And so I, what I, I think the performances in this scene are so um, – Every and they're all calibrated differently, right? Everybody's having a very different 
emotional reaction to this. Jennifer, of, of course, she's so upset because she figured out the puzzle and the answer to the puzzle is that like her best friend and the first person who believed in her isn't going to exist anymore, right? But for Cole, for me, as I'm watching it, like it, not only is it this gut punch of I will never have existed, but also the the line, I'm the demon, like like the idea of Beep as to what you were saying, how tired he is, how long they fought, all of the sacrifices along the way, and to find out when you were trying to do your best to do a good thing and to fix it, you were the problem all along. Right. No matter what you change or undo or go whatever, it, none of this is going to be better until you're just gone. Because everything you were fighting for is is your fault. Right. <laughs> just for existing. It's Literally brutal. just for existing. Yeah. It's brutal. And for Jones, talk about being confronted with your ubris. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, she says later on, like, you know, there's kind of that line later on where she's like, if I hadn't invented, if I hadn't invented time travel and I hadn't done this, then it's all my fault. Right. But like, she, it, it's just everybody's having such different reactions. Um, and then that brings us to Cassie. Well, it's it's kind of funny, too, like how you're saying Jennifer feels like it's her fault. Jones feels like it's her fault. Like there's all these people with those emotions that have kind of been in it from an early stage, whereas Cassie was kind of like thrown in it. She was like taken and thrown into this pit. And so when she comes to that line where I am owed this, mm -hmm. like everything she's given up to, to be at this point and then having then and then she falls in love and then having that stripped away. It's funny. My note on that is like at that moment, I really feel like Cassie is like the audience insert. <laughs> Yeah. Because as an audience, too, we feel like, like, whoa, 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 I am owed here. Like, I've been so invested right now in this story. And here we're at the finale. Like, you can't lose Cole. Like, I'm with Cassie. Like, I, I, I just like, you got to keep fighting, guys. You got to keep fighting. Right. From the beginning, even. I mean, Jones, obviously, you know, even earlier. But Jones, Cole, and like Jennifer, like, I feel like Cassie's kind of in this outsider position of like, you guys signed up for this shit this is not what I wanted. You know what I mean? You, you went on this mission and I've just been kind of thrown around and had everything stripped for me along the way, just trying to help you guys. And this is like, yeah, she was straight is, up car, carjacked. And, and that's and when she said too, like, this is, it wasn't supposed to end this way. And Jones is like, how was it supposed to end? And that, oh my God, oh, that's so meta. Like those two lines, so you're just meta. like, uh, I don't, okay, well, I don't know. That's, it's <laughs> but not so, like this. <laughs> that's basically, I mean, it was so meta. I mean, I was like fucking losing my mind at this point in the finale. <laughs> Cause like Cole's my favorite character. And I was like, are you, uh, and then when Jones says the like, how is this supposed to end? I mean, that's basically my husband's reaction to me. He was like, how did you think this was going to go down, Tina? Like they said from the beginning. Right. And, and so yet, that's like, that is in conflict with also, I know like our, we all have feelings on this, that this is like this, story is in its own way an inverse of the chosen one narrative mm -hmm. so yes along the way like this guy he's it he's the most important everyone knows his name like he is like the guy meaning he is the problem <laughs> <It's> not, <laughs> <laughs> you are not yeah. the savior you are the kink like it's you're the yeah. you know? 
Yeah. I mean, and the thing that also, I mean, so you've got all of that. You've got all of that sort of on first watch that it is, it's, I I love it because it's not only giving the characters room to sit with the the stakes that we've just learned, but it's giving the audience time to sit with it, right? Like, holy fuck, James Cole isn't going to exist, right? Like, if, 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 if the good guys I'm cheering for win, then what I'm going to get at the end of the story is that the hero never existed. And you're like, fuck. But when you rewatch it, there's two different, I think, two other layers they're going on. Like, obviously, this is keying up Cassie's moment on the balcony, right? Like she's angry. She's the person in the room that is angry and not accepting it because this, like, if you think about everything that has been systematically stripped away from her, her career, people questioning her sanity, her fiance died. She then gets thrust into the apocalypse. She, she allows herself to fall in love. She has that life erased. She's kidnapped. Her child is taken from her. Her child is murdered. Then she's had just like, an hour ago is a doctor who had to start a fucking plague. Like, <laughs> I mean, now she just finds out. Now she finds this out. I mean, it's, it's just, just like 2020. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and this kind of circles back to how sad, how it sets up her standing at the countdown. And exactly. that decision she had to make, and which is why it makes it hard for the audience to decide whether or not she's going to stop the countdown or not. Because this moment early in, in part one, you see it. You see her anger. You see how she, you, you hear it and feel it when she says, I am owed. So when she gets to that point later on in part two, then it makes sense. It makes sense why, you know, the you're as an audience understand why it's hard for her, even though you're like screaming at the television, like just push the button and stop the countdown. But you (laughs) understand why she can't like, you understand why she's pausing. And it is a lot to do with the writing here in the part one and everything that transpired and the fact they gave her that. And I just want to take this moment to talk about Amanda Schul's acting right there. Because I think, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Beep, you would know this, like, wasn't she also filming a lot of stuff for Suits at the same time that she was doing a lot of 12 Monkeys? She was going back and forth. I know I that. I would think so. Yeah, I would think so. And and anyone who's watched Suits and, and has seen her, she plays Katrina Bennett on Suits, who comes in and out and, and later becomes a main cast member. But she is like the polar kind of opposite as far as like empathy and stuff like that as, as what... Cassie is that and the fact that that's Amanda Shule going back and forth switching on and off to these characters so I have to like because I watch suits tip my hat to Amanda Shule's performance mm-hmm. this scene it's fantastic yeah it is and really- it does make the balcony make sense because I mean she blatantly says it in, you know not mincing words here I am owed so then the balcony scene is all about am I going to take what I'm owed since right. no one seems to be given it. Yes. To yes. Exactly. Just as we had been, the writers had come on and talked about sort of audience reaction to Cassie in season two and how basically how much care they took to make sure that that moment on the balcony was earned and that we as the audience would get it. Um and not in not 
and not in like partly because it's also a female character and and our audience is more judgmental of female characters. I, I think like it's all like you see this scene is an example of why you are not rolling your eyes and screaming, just fucking turn it off the way you would be if this were like a two hour summer movie where you're like, are you kidding me? Like you, you finally won and you're not going to press the button. Right. Like I don't feel that at all. Like I honestly truly like a scene like this should make you question. What would you do if you were in her shoes? Okay. Now to be fair, I was still screaming that. (laughs) <laughs> but, but because of the setup it was with a different intonation and so that, that <laughs> right. it was it was less like why are you suddenly an idiot just press the button and more like oh god oh god oh god she might not do it oh no yeah, Cassie, it like, do it please do it yeah it's like desperation like from the <laughs> yes, god, yes. Press the fucking button like right no, no no yeah i mean the other and then the other layer to this once you get to the end is when she says you know we are like, we're all owed, right? I mean, that's that's why Colt gets to live is that judgment by however you want to interpret time as a force or, or however it is in this in the mythology of the show. There's so much that is keyed up in these first two scenes that goes directly to the end. Um, it's just brilliant. And like, you don't appreciate it until you go back and rewatch it. I like um, to assume that time was like listening to all these conversations. If we're considering time as like the same entity out same. there and then just yeah. being like, Oh shit. Yeah. She is kind of owed. We should totally give her a happy. My personal headcanon about Jones's, um, you know, like code tinkering is that like, it didn't, it's not that it necessarily worked like the, it wasn't the code that she wrote. It was time looking at her attempt to change it and being like, yeah, you know, you're right. We're going to do this one for you. That's what I think too. Because it's like, like, what does this code do anyway? You know, just the idea of like the schmines of this code. I'm like, okay, great. Like accepted. But I I don't even understand remotely like what the idea of that would be. Especially, like I said, you have this written by like monks in like the 1400s or something. Like what even is this, you know? But I like to think the same thing, Aaron. It was more like there was a note in there that was like, and could you also? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Footnote. Please, yeah. could you just like spit him back out at the end at some point in some form? Like, <laughs> although, you know, like. Kindest regards. Yeah. Kindest <laughs> looking at the code going like, oh, Jones, this is cute. You love your your grandson so much. Uh, this code really doesn't do shit, but we're going to give it to you anyway. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> no, like, no, no, no. Hold on. The code erased him from every moment that cr- in the cycle, right? But, yeah, then no. it, but then it dumps him in a new place. Yes. And, and so what we're what, saying is that the code, that, that whatever Jones wrote into the code was gobbledygook, but time <laughs> saw the intent and was like, we'll throw you a bone. Is this like, Aaron, Aaron, is, is Aaron, are, is this basically like protecting when you're grading papers and you're like, you did a real, I mean, I can see what you're trying to do on this paper. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like you had a good idea, 
<laughs> did not come out in execution, but you're getting like you're getting like a, a high B minus instead of a C plus because I see the effort. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, sweetie, you, you tried the, so hard. This is the ultimate A for effort moment. Exactly. <laughs> you got coal for effort. That's it. <laughs> for effort. <laughs> oh man, I'll take it because I have to tell you, like, I find it extremely rude that that and this is really shallow, but like James Cole has never looked hotter than he does in this finale. And I think it's really rude that they're like, see this, see this guy in this, in this leather jacket and back in the splitter suit. Yeah. That's who we're going to erase guys. <laughs> like it's just <laughs> so rude. I, I was just waiting for Tina's thirst to come jumping out. Of the <laughs> oh man. Look while you can ladies. Yeah. We're at, we're at the end. We're at the end. All, all semblance of professionalism is out the window all right um <laughs> all right so that that takes us to cassie um looking in the mirror um it's cassie with the white streak who we have wondered about um since season one and can i like can i go off on a side rant about that <laughs> sure <laughs> i just kind of dislike it when they always give like that random gray streak in like hair because I'm struggling with my grays right now. Like, <laughs> you just want one. You're freaking jealous. I just jealous. want one, but it's not like you don't get that naturally. That's that's poliosis where people have like a loss of melanin in a spot and it's like stress doesn't cause your hair to go gray. Like stress causes you to lose your hair, but you can't just develop a gray streak because I've wanted to my entire life. And instead it's just age <laughs> and it's gray all over the fucking place. I feel like Rogue from X-Men gave us really unrealistic expectations for the cool, the, the cool ways that hair can Gray and <laughs> no gray, even though yeah, even though at some point someone needed to say, "Oh, that's because I have poliosis. It's a condition." Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I think maybe I think maybe we're just all feeling really sensitive about our gray hair in the middle of this pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> I really also, am, and it just but, doesn't look as cool as hers. Okay, <laughs> uh, and it's not. I mean, because you didn't get it from a paradox. Like, I mean, that's apparently what you have to do to get a really cool white streak. Um, what I, what always makes me, um, I, I'm not meaning to say this because obviously all the times that we're seeing these scenes, they're really, really sad in the show. But when Cassie is remembering sort of the, like basically Casserole's greatest hits, I'm like, Cassie's memories are like my Tumblr like dashboard of all of the gifts. <laughs> You ever see scenes in a show now and you're like, oh, it's like a fan vid. <laughs> I'm like, Cassie, I totally have that video saved too on YouTube. Like, yeah, it's like they just made it for you. So it's a nice shortcut. Yes, those are all my favorite moments too. Like we just I love that we're at the finale, so Cece's thirst can like run rampant this whole fucking pot. And it's just like if people don't know that uh, that this exists on Tumblr and fan vids, like I don't know what you're doing with your fangirl or fanboy life. Um, all right, so we get sort of the like amazing and the score. I mean, I know we talked a lot about it in the last podcast when Stephen Barton was on. The score is incredible, and and the moments like the future asshole watching all of these puzzles fall back into place <clears throat> with three hundred one. Um, when Futurassel grabbed Cole, um, 
and all of that, like saving Jennifer, all of that falling into place, the music really kind of adds to that sense of discovery. But can we just for a minute talk about the moment when Cassie hands Cole his mother's scarf and then he covers his face with it, almost almost the reverse of Hannah unwrapping her face in lullaby? You shut your damn mouth. (laughs) (laughs) You shut it now. (laughs) It's done. I said it. Tell me how you feel. I just want to say that I just went upstairs and just grabbed the bottle of vodka out of the freezer (laughs) and brought it down with me. That is well deserved. I'm like, oh, well, fuck it. Here we go. It's going to make me get sad. Yeah. It's a beautiful, I mean, it, it not only is a clue, right, that, that goes back to 301 that Hannah was his mother. It's just this, like, he's taking this piece of his mother with him, right, to, to go do what he has to do to ensure the cycle. Um, it's just, it's beautiful. It's like those character emotional details, like the people writing the show, just, it's, there's just so much depth to it. Um well, and this is one of the things where I always tell people when I'm trying to like pimp the show out to get people to watch is that it's a moment like that that makes this show so rewatchable and enjoyable forever and ever. Because when I'm first watching this finale, I'm not I'm not locking into moments like that necessarily, right. you know, like because that's such a subtle little nod. It's a, it's like it's it's an Easter egg that the the writers and stuff put in there for you know the fans to enjoy that's so in character too but that's what makes it so rewarding on rewatch like when you have a show that you can go back and rewatch and it just makes you love it all the more like that's just well done that's again goes back to the care that the showrunners and the writers have for the material that they're taking care of because they're putting in moments like that that just cause you to bond with the show even further. And it just makes sense to the characters. Like, it's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean... But yeah, t- that didn't have to be Hannah's scarf. It didn't have to be. Right. But the fact that it is, is just like that one little extra thought that, w- right. that was put into it. And if you mm-hmm. think about it, right, that's, you know, the mother who, who said, can I walk with you so you do not walk alone? right? Who was there when he thought his mother was never there. And now she's gone, but he's still got to take Jesus Christ! I know. I'm like, <laughs> literally, when are you going to shut the fuck up? <laughs> I'm not. Wow, you've taken on my role this, this time. That's right. Beep. Hours. Yeah, this is, this, is, uh, this is Tina Strikes Back, Beep. All right. Um, so now we get to watch the future asshole scene. Um, and now we are firmly in the in future asshole's point of view rather than season three Cole, who hasn't found Cassie yet. Much less fun this time around. <laughs> right. I mean, it hurt. It hurt before too, right? Sure. But like, but- um, so as as Cassie, we knew Cassie was there, although they reveal that she is listening to this conversation. Tell me how you feel about Cole telling him, future asshole, our Cole now, telling his past self, who he now knows is on this totally like futile journey. You're going to have to forgive yourself for what you've done, for what you're going to have to do. There's a beginning and there's an end. 
And all you and I are ever going to have is what's in between. I mean, the the quote unquote convenient thing is it still fits with his theory at the time, you know, because he's not going to be that cold anymore. Correct. Um, yeah. So it's like he's not lying. But at the same time, oh, my Lord, is he having to. I mean, can you imagine trying to hold yourself together through that? Like, dude is just. The oof. thing that that like always destroys me about you know, the line about um, you're going to have to forgive yourself for what you've done, for what you're going to have to do, is that he doesn't know yet, the 301 Cole doesn't know yet that he's going to kill Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the one that kills me. And then, of course, future asshole doesn't know yet that he's going to see Ramsey again. Right. Right. But, like, that's the I, one that just, like... I hate you guys right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's about hey, to really? get... Right it? Hey, Terry Metalis. Yeah, dude. And fuck you too, Terry. Fuck you too. All right. Um, I mean, right. And he doesn't know that he's about to get that forgiveness from from Ramsey. And if you want to make it hurt even more, I went back. I would recommend um, folks that are rewatching this finale to go back and watch the scene in the night room when Cassie and Cole are taught Cassie's basically like, dude, I am. <laughs> it's kind of funny when you watch it. She's like, I am not about killing people. I am about healing people. And you have made my life terrible. And uh, like, who are you? And it's because she's just found out that he killed um, Henri in Haiti. Um, but Cole, the, the, it's kind of like the opening statement of Cole's character arc. He talks about when he killed. Yeah, when he and Ramsey, they kept like trying to set up all these rules for themselves about when it was okay to kill and when it wasn't, and sort of the excuses and rationalization, like those rules just kept sliding and sliding until they found themselves one time killing this married couple. And as he was killing the woman, she smiled at him and forgave him. And he realized that like that is all that he wants is forgiveness. And that's what this whole journey is about. That if he can just fix all of this and and get that forgiveness, it will have all of those terrible things that he did, like it will have been like that's all that he wants. And so this Cole now, like he now knows how he can achieve that forgiveness, even though the cost is basically him never having existed at all. And so Right. He feels like that's his absolution. Yeah. Right. Um that that that's what and that's why he's so resigned and and calm kind of in a sense about it because he's just like this is this is what i do to achieve the absolution which is why it really strikes me when he says all you are ever going to have is what's in between um it's it's this great understanding for all of us it's a life cycle it's Mm -hmm. what we all do it's it's we're born and then we die and so we he's basically telling that cole like just so live in the moments and be present and and take everything as it comes and and be easy on yourself right and it ties so beautifully with you know the the theme that is the one that like i carry with me from this from this finale is you know cole's speech about endings giving everything meaning and and living in the moment and the happily ever now and you know when you go back and rewatch this scene now from this perspective, those words, right? It, it's not just true for Cole in this crazy sci-fi mythology. That's true for all of us. And right. Like, 
how much time do we waste on not forgiving ourselves or not forgiving others? Right. Like, yeah, it's just beautiful. And it just, um, I'm going to make a, not a Buffy reference, but an angel <laughs> reference. Yeah. <laughs> cut. And, yeah. and I've, I've made it, and I've made this reference on here before, and it goes back to the epiphany speech. Beep knows it um, from Angel, where and and the part that people always remember in the epiphany speech is nothing. If nothing we do matters, all that matters is what we do. Um, but this part of Cole talking, future Cole and past Cole talking to each other, reminds me of the rest of that speech, which is like, because if that's all there is, that's all there is, is what we do now today. I fought for so long for redemption, for a reward, but I never got it, but I don't still get it. But all I want to do is help. And I want to help because I don't think people should suffer as they do. Because if there is no bigger meaning to this, then the smallest act of kindness means everything. And that's kind of the message that future asshole is giving himself is you do the best that you can in the moments that you have, because right. that's all there is. Yeah. And the thing, the thing, you know, I mean, we're talking all of that and what is also sort of the added layer of why it's so moving is because like the, like the old Jennifer talking to young Jennifer saying, I love you, right? This is an older version of yourself, right? It's it's the last one that we're going to get of what would you say to yourself, um, a, a past you, like if you could. And it's not only like so in character for Cole and his kind of like struggle for redemption that has gone throughout the whole series, but, but this is another example of the show using time travel that in a way that you only can in a time travel story for for someone to give wisdom to their to their past self, right? That that you haven't obtained yet, if that makes sense, right? Like it, it's you can only have that in a time travel story. And so it, you know, the idea of him, this isn't somebody else telling Cole you have to forgive yourself like when Ramsey would say that to him. This is this is him telling himself that. I get really emotional when I think of that because it's it's hard to not self-insert yourself in a moment like what would you tell a younger version of you with the knowledge that you have today. And so I think the part that really always kills me in that is the, the see you soon that he gives to himself. Mm. Um, it just, it, it, I'm, well, I'm about ready to cry. It crushes Aww. me. Like <laughs> <laughs> there's a, um, a song by a guy named John K. Sampson. Um, and he, 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 is or was or I don't know if he still is, but he was the sort of lead singer songwriter of the band, The Weaker Thans. Um, mm. And he has this trilogy of songs um, about his cat, his cat named Virtue, um, and they're all kind of about. The first two are are narrated from the point of view of his cat, and they're both kind of about the cat um, observing basically like his depression and alcoholism. Um, and the first one is the cat sort of like berating him, the cat saying like, come on, get up out of the couch, you know, like, why don't you do anything anymore? And the second one is the second one always fucking makes me cry. It's called virtue. The cat explains his departure and it's about the cat running away. Um, and, uh, the last line of the song is I can't remember the sound that you found for me, which always makes me uh, cry. Hmm. And then the third song in the trilogy is called Virtue at Rest. 
And it's not on, it's not a weaker, the first two are weaker than songs. The the third one is um, on a solo album from a couple of years ago called Winter Wheat. Again, always makes me cry. And this, the solo album was written when he was in um, inpatient treatment for alcoholism and depression. And again, it's from the point of view of the cat, but the cat is gone now, you know, it's, it's dead, it's gone. And so it's, it's from, it's the cat speaking to him from his memories and basically like forgiving him for the mistakes that he made. And the last line of the song is let it rest. All you can't change, let it rest and be done. And that again, always makes me cry. Um, because, you know, as someone who who has suffered from depression and, and struggled with a lot of these things, you know, that and that and struggled with being able to forgive yourself for mistakes that you've made, you know, or things that you did and shouldn't have done or should have done and didn't do. It's just that line, let it rest all you can't change, let it rest and be done. And then coming from this cat, you know, that has sort of, that he, I think he feels like he failed, um, makes me yeah. think of Cole. Yeah. I think it's something that um, uh, there's a lot of really beautiful themes in this finale. And I feel like this one maybe isn't talked about as much. Um, This idea of self-forgiveness. Because, you know, we get to the end, obviously Cole is going to get, you know, this kind of um, supernatural absolution from time, right? That none of us can really, you know, none of us are going to have. But but his self-forgiveness um, and that journey that he goes on, right? Like he's not, he's not clamoring to live, right? I mean, it, it, there's this very, um, like the coal of this finale, it has this like wisdom and acceptance and like finally achieving that self-forgiveness. Um, and it's really beautiful when you rewatch it especially if you go back and kind of watch some of those early season one scenes that kind of set out what his journey's about. And obviously something in real life, like self-forgiveness is one of the hardest things there is, right? Like I think it's probably easier to forgive other people than it is to forgive yourself. Yeah, for sure. Watching it now with those, with, with those themes in mind that we're talking about, because it's like when you juxtapose it with coming to your death in, in life, and if you've ever, you know, had to watch someone go through cancer or, or die and having these moments in which you try to find absolution and you try to forgive yourself for all the things you didn't did and didn't do in life. And we're watching Cole do that. Like, I didn't really think about that the first time watching it, but going back and thinking of it as Cole knowing that all the actions that he's taking here are leading to not just like his death, but his erasure and, and still getting through it anyway. And, and looking for ways, even though they're subtle to have these, either a moment of reckoning or a a moment of redemption, a moment of forgiveness, a moment of absolution with all the important people in his life. And then also on the flip side, watching the people who love him, especially Cassie, trying so hard to to keep a hold of him, to make sure he lives. And it just makes me think of the times in which, you know, I, I've been with my grandfather and, and watching him pass and, and me wanting to do whatever it takes to give him just another day and to have one more moment with him. And that's Cassie. 
and then and then I'm sorry. <laughs> and then Cole just being resigned to it and, and just giving those last moments of love to the people who matter most to him. And I think I totally missed some of that stuff the first time watching. But the fifth, sixth, seventh time watching, that's the thing that resonates the most to me now. I want to be able to give you a hug. This sucks. I know. I I fucking did not anticipate to be the first one to break down on this. First of all, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, But there's a lot about this part of Cole's story that has reminded me of times in my life where somebody was terminally ill and and, you know, there's a lot of the differences between Cassie and Cole that I think come down to character journeys and where they started and what they've gone through as to, and just maybe some things that are essential about them as characters as to how they are dealing with this basically like, you know, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's akin to dealing with like a terminal diagnosis, right? Um, mm-hmm. but, but worse, because he won't even be remembered as far as they understand. Um, but the other key difference is Cassie's the one who's going to be left behind. And that is often the harder person to be. And I know that that sounds strange, right? As opposed to the person who's like losing their life, right? But like emotionally, it's just you're in a very different place than the person who's having to come to like accept that their life is ending. And sometimes it seems like just from what I've observed, it's the people that are on the sidelines that can't fix it that it's almost harder, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, they have to anticipate, they're sort of anticipating the event of death, but then, you know, like everything after that, you know, like if you're the one who's dying, I mean, it's not really an advantage, but like the by definition, if you're dead, and especially for Cole being erased, it's like you don't experience anything ever again after that. Right. So, you know, which is like its own existential horror, obviously, but, (laughs) you know, but like, but like once it's done as done versus bereavement, which, you know, if you've ever lost someone that you were very, very close to, I mean, like really anyone, but if you've ever lost like someone like a parent or, or a family member you're very close to, or, you know, a spouse or loved one you're very, very close to, like that is a loss. Like it, you never get over it, right? Like that grief is always there and it and it's more or less acute depending on the passage of time and all sorts of other things, but like it's never not there. Right. If you think about in in the context of, of Cole's journey, it, it's just like what Aaron was saying, you know, in, in real life, it can be more difficult for the ones that are left behind. But like that's why this is even worse for him because in as far as he knows, he's not gonna have that. He, yeah. nobody left they're not going to remember him yeah and yeah. so that's why i find like i know that he's always been looking for self-forgiveness but i also feel like it becomes even more important toward the end of this because that's the only forgiveness he'll ever know he has he's doing a lot in this episode in this finale particularly with cassie but he's he's keeping everybody focused He's trying to get everybody emotionally ready for what they need to do. Like he's doing a lot of, um, a lot like, and that takes us sort of into what is one of my, like, it's, it's a small moment, but it's one of my favorite, like culmination of like everything that we know about Cole um, is after he brutally um, says to Jennifer in that flashback to to 401, um, the last one I'm ever going to be. 
which now you're like, oh, now I get that line. Fuck. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, but, But when he comes back and they don't have the processing power, and Jones, everybody's like giving up and Jones is already beginning the like self-flagellation, right? The, the one thing that has been like Cole's mantra, right, is that the, the only failure is giving up. And, and now we know that that was like passed down from Elliot Jones through Hannah, through his father to him. And that's when he's basically like, like just waves everybody's self-flagellation and giving up off. And he's like, yeah, save that for the end when we fail. I'm headed this way, right? Like I am not giving up. And I'm just like, like, it's just such a great, it's a small character moment, but it's like, you know, we, we have been hearing that about Cole. Like Tommy Crawford said that to him in the hallway in season two, right? The only failure is giving up. We heard his father say that to him when he was a boy, like in season one, like it's just such a great, like they just know their character so well. I also really love that he cuts off Jones in the middle of the speech. Like there's like a kind of like little, like just a, just a touch of humor in this sort of, she's like, she's like, you can see her building up the head of steam, like getting her momentum on with her big speech. And he's like, yeah, I'll listen to that later. But right now we got work to do. And she's like, uh, 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 okay. <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> got time for that, Jonesy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is like, it's a, I mean, that's the amazing thing about this finale is that it just had us, like we were in like crying actual tears about some of the very um, deeper things that it has to say about life. And yet it also gives us so much comedy. And one of my favorite like casserole moments are when, you know, they're like battle couple and they're not giving up. And then you just watch Cassie's face as Cole's like, okay, so I have a plan. And her face is like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? Like now? It almost now? looks like Amanda slips into it for a moment. Yeah. And then you're like, yeah, say, this yeah. is part of it. <laughs> that is one of the most like convincing couple moments on any TV show I've ever, like that was the moment where I was like, oh yeah, they're a married couple. Like that a hundred percent. Like those are two <laughs> right. people who are like in love, but also not just like, like in love and in some like romantic way where they've never been together. Like those are, that's like a relationship that is lived in. Like that, yeah. like when you can turn on a dime like that from super serious stuff to like, oh, there you go. Like doing your, on your bullshit again. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, actually, you're not on your bullshit. And that's the thing that is like shocking to me. Right? Yeah, like, right. when the fuck have you ever had a plan, Cole? Jesus. <laughs> like, okay, okay. I, Johnny, sorry, just takes you the end of the world for you actually to have a plan. Right? It's like, okay, Johnny Nightroom. Like, now you waited for the plan? Like, oh my God, it's so great. But then the it's way like, it's their version of an argument about who did the dirty dishes sort of thing. Right. Like, oh, exactly. you finally dishes in the dishwasher good job cole <laughs> yeah or like i thought so my husband has this like really bad habit of like he just drops his towel wherever he is when he's done with it like and so like to the point where like after every month about every month or so we get down to like one or two towels and i have to like go wandering around various places and digging through things to try to find all the towels so like when once in a blue moon he puts his towel like in an actual hamper or hangs it up. And I was like, Oh my God, you hung up your towel. Good job. And he's like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) It's like a child. (laughs) Those are are just like, that's exactly what you guys are like. That is a couple that is, that is writing a couple that is real. Even in these stakes, 
they're acting like real human beings. Do you know what I mean? Like you still yes. like, right. And so, but, and then, and then the, like, just the look he gives her is like, you know, you, you're not starting the shit now. The, the yeah, plan's this yeah. way. Like you want to hear it. Like, it's just so, uh, it makes me laugh. I love it more and more every time I watch it. Um, so talk to me about the missing page and, and bringing back Ramsey. It is, I mean, the music, the way that Cassie says for Cassie to be the one to, to think, like, think back to this. It is Cassie whose idea it is to bring back Ramsey and think about the character journey they've had together. Right. Like, and where this well, left and off. Think about, and think about the moment in which like they're pulling Ramsey from time. Like yeah. that, that was, her. he was going to kill her. Oof. Like that is yeah. the very worst Ramsey right there. The very yeah. worst one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, right. And I love it because it's it, this idea. It's like friends and family, right? It's such which a- Which is also a great piece of foreshadowing about for Deacon later on, which again, you like, you don't realize until you rewatch. And then it's like, <gasps> like, of course, yes! everyone's coming yeah. back. Yes. Um, right. Totally. I But I, I do love like one thing I think that I really like about the way that they, they, fo- they you know, they bring Ramsey back in here. Um, you know, speaking of catharsis, it's like a really, it's like a really lovely piece of catharsis for both Cole and the audience, you know, to kind of get a little bit of re- like closure and repair on that relationship, you know, because of course it did like Ramsey died as far as we knew, as far as Cole knew at that kind of like the nadir, not just of Ramsey mm-hmm. as a person, but of their relationship, you know, mm-hmm. like the absolute sort of rock bottom worst moment. And you know that that was something that, you know, Cole, like if, it, if he was one thing that he could take back or do over, that's like one of the things. And so it is really like, it's, it's great to kind of have this little time to be able to sort of bring them back together, connect them again, kind of reconnect with the, how much they love and care about each other and, and the sort of like partnership, the brother, brothership. Brotherhood? <laughs> <laughs> brothership. Bromance. No, it's not bromance. Brothership. I'm going with brothership. It's not a word, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> but at the same time, like the thing that I really, really admire about these writers and the kind of like the subtlety and I think the like the emotional intelligence of the writing and also kind of the, the, the light touch that they have is that it, it also doesn't fix or repair or undo everything right like it's a it's clear you know like this is happening because Cole knows that he's going to be erased Ramsey knows he's going to die they kind of both have the context to be able to say we can set aside all of our baggage and have this last run together but like at the end of all this Ramsey still has to go back and die there you know, mm-hmm. like things are still going to happen the way that they happened. That pain is still real. What happened still happened, you know? So, so it's not a kind of like, it doesn't feel cheap, I think, because it's, it isn't like, and now that we've done this, it's like none of that other stuff counts or like we didn't, you know, it's as if we didn't even go through this pain or suffering or that conflict, you know, it's these two characters who, who, you know, with all of that pain and suffering and damage, are choosing to set it aside and choosing each other, you know, sort of affirmatively in that moment with the knowledge that it's all going to have to kind of go back 
you know, he has to go back and die there. Cole has to go through the experience of losing him. So that way that they can kind of like find healing within these really sort of broken relationships that is not just earned, but also like honors the depth of it and doesn't try to sort of paper over or fix things that, that, you know, that like can't just be easily fixed. Yeah. The yeah. the consequence remains. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the cons and the consequences it's not only that. I mean, um, they're never going to be Ramsey and Cole adult brothers again. Like, yeah, I mean, right? They never, they will never be the same, right? Like, they won't be the same ages, right? I mean, so, so this, they'll even, just, I mean, they'll never be, period. They'll just never be. Yeah. Yeah. They'll never yeah. be. Yeah. So I think the thing that kills me the most in that moment, the more I rewatch it, because the first time, I'll admit, the first time I went through the series, like, I wasn't necessarily like Ramsey's number one fan. And particularly, <laughs> like Aaron was saying, in that moment, that, that is like, we're at the worst Ramsey. Like he's in so much, he has so much anger, so much hurt and so much pain in that moment. So much so that his own brother has to put him down. Mm. And then he gets, he gets snatched out of time. And this is, this is the moment on rewatch that really kills me. And if I cry again, fuck it, we're just (laughs) at that point. Mm -hmm. But this is like, they have that goodwill hunting moment, you know, where they're hugging out, their pain because you know as soon as they shoot back to wherever ramsey's still angry and and trying to like beat the shit out of and and kill cole who's just holding him and holding him through that anger because he's gone past that already he's dealt with the fact that he had to like kill ramsey and stuff so he's just holding him and letting him let go of that anger and he just starts sobbing into his shoulder because you know even through all that anger and that hurt and that pain how much he loves Cole, that he thinks that he what he is doing is is right, and by trying to kill Cassie, and but he knows it's hurting his brother that he still loves so much. So to see him get to have that catharsis of being able to let go of that anger that he was holding on in that moment, and just cry it out, and then knowing the Ramsey that got to let go of the anger and cry it out. It's the Ramsey that then goes back and gets killed by his brother. Yeah. That he got to let go, like, and forgive Cole for what he was going to do and understand why and, and get to let Cole know how much he actually loved him. Um, and then go and get shot by him. Like that just, it just kills me when I see it, like for the 20th time. Yeah, no, that's fine. It's fine. It is. It's that asymmetrical. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about it is there's all this talk of forgiveness, right? And and the love is so close under the surface of of all of that anger and all of that pain, right? But the reason, if you think about it, it's like Cole has lived with what Ramsey did. Right, that Ramsey wanted to kill Cassie um, for I don't know how much time has passed, but at least months, right? right. Since the beginning of season three, um, and 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 perhaps it's that passage of time and being put in similar situation um, because it was his son whose life was on the line, right? Like for all of season three, that Cole has been able to come both through time and being in some ways put in Ramsey's shoes 
get to that point of forgiveness, even though his brother was going to do something that was like truly like the ultimate betrayal. Right. And, and and he's able to offer that forgiveness in that moment because of the time that has passed and the experiences that he's had. Right. And then you have Ramsey who receives that forgiveness in that moment as the product of what Cole has gone through. Then the Ramsey that has sent back and is able to give that moment to Cole, it's because of the time he has had, right? Yeah. With the future yeah. Cole to understand. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, like and and it's interesting because it's like that love and that that ability to forgive is part of both of who they are, and yet they never could have gotten there and didn't. Like, right? I mean, obviously, like Cole killed him in the moment, um, although he kind of let himself, as we understand, be killed. But like, you never, it's both like tragic and also just really interesting about like what it's saying about how are we able to forgive um, and when we're able to forgive, if that makes sense. Yeah. It reminds me of the um, the episode of Community where Troy and Arbad are in the pillow fort versus blanket fort civil war. And they get to the very, very end and they're just, so good. They're just so standing good. there hitting each other with pillows and they won't stop. And um, I think Jeff asked them, you know, like, it's over. Why don't you stop? And Abed says, because, or no, Troy says this, because this is the last thing we're ever going to do together. And, and Jeff is like, maybe if you love each other so much that you'll hit each other with pillows until the end of time so that you don't ever stop doing things together, that means you should forgive each other. And that's like, I feel like that's, you know, like that's very much kind of what was happening between Cole and Ramsey, you know, in that, in that in 301, right? Where this is kind of like so much anger and resentment and unwillingness to forgive. But what's driving the intensity of that is their love for each other, you know? And you can kind of see, you can sort of watch Ramsey go through that process of like getting through the anger um, down to the kind of like the, the hurt and the pain and the love underneath that while Cole is like holding on to him and hugging him. Yeah. Which is it's, also a testament to their acting. Uh, to their acting, yes. Oh yeah. yeah. God. Yeah. And the way the fight is choreographed is um it's like brothers fighting. You know? Yeah. Like it's messy yeah. and it's not slick, right? And they're just like all I mean, I'm like, God, you guys look like my kids brawling after like three months of being cooped up in the house together, yeah. right? Like it's, <laughs> it's it's like it's messy because they're brothers like fighting. There's just so much um uh, like there's just a lot of um, Aaron, how did you put it? Like emotional intelligence in the way yeah. that yeah. all of it, all of it plays out. And honestly, like I don't mean to be whatever about it, but I I I love that it is two men that are hugging one another, that are in tears, that are offering, like, th- they're two very masculine characters, right? Like, they're the bros that were joking around and, you know, going on apocalypse heists in season one, right? And there's so much emotion. Um, it's really, like, I love seeing men portray that on television. I, I like, I hope we see more of that. Um, of like showing forgiveness and emotion and love for one another instead of anger. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, they they showed finally Ramsey broke down with him and showed his vulnerability in that moment. Mm-hmm. That the fact that it wasn't just anger that was driving him, but it was this need to feel loved by Cole. Yeah. 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 Um, And then deftly, it takes us from a moment of catharsis to just freaking hilarious reunion between first Ramsey and Cassie with just the most awkward, hi, (laughs) hi. (laughs) (laughs) And then sup, bro, sup, Cocoa Puffs. Like, what? (laughs) I mean, and then I love Jennifer's reaction to seeing him walk in. Like, like Jennifer's like, what the fuck? And Jennifer's just like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Getting the band moment, together. Yeah. Jennifer is like this, the audience insert in that moment. And then she's yes. just joyful. And I love that they just allow her to be joyful as fuck in yes. those moments in yeah. which we're behind the scenes cheering as well. Yeah. Yes. Like they're talking about how they're going to save the world. And then you've got Jennifer be like, um, she's his grandma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Ra- him up. And Ramsey's face is like, what? It's like all, it's so subtle and there's so much going on, right? But it's just, uh, it's so great. Um, that takes us to um, Ramsey and Cole going back to get, I think they go all the way to Pennsylvania to get to Philly, right? To get I um, have questions about <laughs> how that works. <laughs> actually <laughs> it's fine it's fine cassie's like you had to go all that way to get the car it's it was a camaro it was his dad's camaro it's fine <laughs> plan, okay just give it to him yeah he he used the splitter suit right no no nope. but on the- <laughs> <laughs> whatever i mean yeah the, the train isn't running but it's philly's not that far from new york um <laughs> so you got i mean I I love sort of the symbolism of using this, you know, if you learned from your father that the only failure is giving up and you decide that the instrument for your like Hail Mary plan is the old car that you wouldn't start (laughs) that he like fixed up. It's just kind of like what a like Cole is going like super symbolic with the car with the <laughs> instrument that he's using to charge Titan. Then he finds the ring. Tell me your feelings about finding Hannah's ring. Okay. I have actually one thing I noticed on this rewatch. I think Cassie goes at the very, very end when she goes back to finish out her loop, she's still wearing the ring. Isn't that a problem? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> like she goes back Fine. in time with it. Yeah, when she goes back to, at the very end, like right before yeah. they arose to Cole, when she goes back to, you know, like whatever, you know, do all the things that she has to do before to to keep causality in place. She's still wearing that ring. Yeah. I Is mean, I don't see why that would do anything, though. It's- Wouldn't time, un- like if time undoes like like wounds and death, time can undo a solitary engagement ring. Though. I guess that's true. <laughs> I just didn't know I was like... Yeah, it literally was not so that big saying, of a bomb. What like, you're saying <laughs> is time, time just steals that ring. Time just like, like I was like, that. look, I owe you, but you owe me. Yeah. So. <laughs> I get the ring and you can have coal. <laughs> it's a very classy setting and I'm going to keep it. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I just like, I wasn't sure if there are rules that like, you know, whatever. But I guess if, as long as she like doesn't go to Pennsylvania and get in that car and like paradox it with 
the other ring that is currently in there. It's fine. Oh my God. What if she did that? Cause she got so frustrated. She's like, fuck this noise. And just like, went paradox no, cause that, cause that ring, that ring never existed. Cause Hannah never met Cole. I mean, Matthew Cole. No, right? but it did exist. It exists as long as she has to go back and finish her loop. Right. right. So it exists for however many years she's back there redoing her loop. <laughs> so right. for that for that redditor who really wanted an edgy ending, <laughs> this is it. Like for that, you there you go. Yeah, <laughs> for that fucking guy, you can just <laughs> go right. I have go a confession. I was that guy all along. <laughs> <laughs> go write your fanfic that Cassie like paradoxed herself with the engagement <laughs> ring, and then you get your unhappy ending, dude. Um, okay. <laughs> all right. I. I have a lot of feelings about this proposal scene. I know. If you don't cry right now on the pod, (laughs) I'm going to be really angry because I think I've cried twice and you've cried zero. So (laughs) let's let's get with it. The first thing about, I have a lot of things to say about it. The first thing is I, uh, I am a romantic. I, no shit. No no shit. (laughs) No. I love sci-fi. Sci-fi is usually, it seems, written by men that are embarrassed about romance and don't give us a lot, most of the time, these like, this is a swing for the fences, fucking romantic moment. Like, like Casablanca level of angst. These two people love each other and they can't be together, but we're going to give you a beautiful moment that is like literally beautiful with a sunset and is purely a, and we'll get to it. I know there's some important character arc things going on here um, in terms of setting up the balcony, but, but this is a purely like romantic loving gesture on the part of Cole. And it's also for the audience. Like you have been on a journey with this couple and it's been, it's been fucking hard, man. It's like you have it. We've had like the moments and blood washed away. And at the beginning of the season two finale, and then you had some like a really cute scene of them dancing in Victorian times. But other than that, it has been a really, really hard ro- road. And they just gave us like a beautiful scene of two people loving each other. And I just want to like I'm just so thankful, and, and when it was happening, I was like, I, I honestly was just like, thank you, thank you for giving me this moment as a for them, like as a couple. And I absolutely 100% thought that there was no way that James Cole would ever survive this finale, given this scene. If that makes sense, like I was like, yeah. you're giving this to me yeah. because there isn't going to be a happy ending, and I appreciate that because it has been a really long journey, and I've been very invested in them. Like, I appreciate it. Um, I also, like, Beep has made a gif. Of- <laughs> <laughs> Can you just describe what happens? Because No, I, I would love to. I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> I think the hardest part of any ship for Cece is not, it's not even the kisses. It's not even the crying. It's, it's the face touching. It's the, right? face it's touching. the it's little hair swipes. Just the little... The little motions, the little care. And I just like to send those to her because I know that she screams at me and it just brings me such joy. But here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing that is um, about sort of the performance. Uh, Cassie has done that since season one. 
She did that with Cole when he was a little boy in Paradox. She did that for Cole at the end of that episode when he paradoxed himself. It's like this subtle, like, character thing that, like, that's what she does. And, like, when you go back and rewatch it, and somebody might have actually made that. I think, I think I realized this because somebody actually made a gift set of this, of like all the times that she's done it. So it's shocking. I know, shocking. (laughs) Um, So, but I mean, to talk about sort of thematically what is going on here after I just got out my like, thank you for giving me a beautiful romantic scene as sort of like what I thought was going to be the bookend of this romantic story. Um, the obviously what is going on here is setting up in a big way, the, the speech that Cole is going to give Cassie on the balcony. And um, we talked a little bit about sort of their their different points of view given that Cole has to be erased and Cassie's the one that's going to be left behind. But I was curious, sort of like, obviously this touches back to, you know, Cassie saying it's not enough and Cole basically being the person that's like, he's trying to give her this beautiful moment, right? It's all, it's all that he can give her, right? It's literally like what he says and it's actually true, right? Um, it also goes fundamentally like- Oh, you mean when he says, I don't have forever to offer you. All I have is this moment, but it's yours if you'll take it. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, like, you know, that. Like those words. <laughs> I'm just going to need one of you guys to take over. I broke her. <laughs> yes. Here's, okay, okay, Cece. Here's my notes on the whole Cassie Cole key scene. For some reason, and I know everyone here is like, listen to Hamilton, right? <clears throat> uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I can hear her meek little. <laughs> um, every time I watch this scene, I break out in my head. I'm like, look at where you are. Look at where you started. And mm. I think of the first time when Eliza sings it in That Would Be Enough early on in Hamilton. And she's just like, look at where, we, look at where you are. Look at where you started. The fact that you're alive is a miracle. Stay alive. That would be enough. And oh. I always sing it when I think of that. And, and here's the thing. That gets repeated later on in Hamilton, as you know, in It's Quiet Uptown. Mm-hmm. After they've lost their son. And it, instead of Eliza singing it, it's Hamilton singing it. And he's just like, and, and instead of look at where you are, he says, look at where we are. Look at where we started. I know I don't deserve you, Eliza. But hear me out. That would be enough. And basically, it's the same thing, Cole, here. Like, just being with you in this moment, and it it would be enough for me. And her stanza, of course, is you being alive, just stay alive, that would be enough. And then knowing how that ends for Hamilton and Eliza. Um, Anyway... (laughs) I fucking hate you. <laughs> and then I also think about who lives, who dies, who tells your story. You guys are fucking monsters. I mean, hey, that's not our fault. Blame Lynn Manuel Miranda. It's true. <laughs> uh, um, so, by the way, you're the one who said someone else take over, and I did, okay? You did. Yeah. Thanks for that. I really, um, okay. Um, <laughs> you picked the wrong general. She shot the bed. <laughs> a whole nother part. Uh, all right. If I can get that, I'm sorry. They're like my favorite TV couple of all time. And this is like a fucking proposal scene. And so I'm just not going to be chill about it at all. Um, but, but 
Um, it's this fucking saddest proposal in the history of the world. It's like, would you like to be engaged to me for the two more hours that I will exist? And as we face our certain doom, (laughs) even if like, or unless we actually like all die. It's kind of the perfect, you know, gesture because it's like, well, you know, like if we if we lose, then this is all we ever ever will have anyway, you know. So like, I have this moment, or like if we win and he's a race, and if we lose, then here's your perfect moment to live in forever. <laughs> so I'm giving you're you, I'm giving you a good memory to live over exactly. and over again uh, in that red forest. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to try and put my big girl pants on and, and talk about sort of like also the thematic stuff that's going on here. Um, I think, you know, the way that these two characters have approached um, risk and loss, right, has been different. From, like if you think back to the conversations that they had in Lullaby, right, when Cassie was like pulling away. Um, because it's the losing that haunts us um, and how all of that, like <clears throat> Cassie, somebody who started out with like a normal life and expected moments like this, right? Like, you know, maybe I don't, you know, I don't know if she was hoping for it with Aaron Marker at some point, but like, you know, had an expectation of like, yeah, there's going to be, a, you know, maybe some I'll fall in love with someone and they'll propose to me and we'll get married, right? She started from like a life, a, like a perspective that like we would have, right? Because she lived in our world and all she has ever done um, since the pilot is, is lose things over and over again. Cole is like child of the apocalypse. He never expected anything. And so for him, not only is he trying to, I think, get through to her because he knows, like he sees that she's having a hard time accepting this, um, but but it just also, their different points of view on this just makes so much sense character-wise. Like not only that it's obviously setting up um, the big moment that's going to be in the finale when she says this isn't enough, um, but I just think it's like, it just goes to like what they built the choices and the points of view and the way the characters are reacting, all of it makes sense. Um, And I know that that sounds really basic, but sometimes when you get to the end of a TV show and people need A, B, and C to happen to get to the end, it doesn't always make sense. Do you know what I mean? The other thing thematically, like when Cole says, I don't have, like, this is what I'm offering you. I don't have forever. Like, obviously that has one meaning in the context of what he has to do. But it's really true for all of us, right? Like when you fall in love with someone, like when when you choose to spend your life with someone, like you don't know what you don't know what life's going to bring you, right? You can't make those promises, um, or you can't keep them. It's out of your control. None of us have forever to offer one another. Um, yeah, so, he just happens to know when his expiration is, right? And so the the. Honestly, like the poetry of, do you know why, like looking at a sunset and do you know why it's so beautiful because it sets, it's just, um, it's, I mean, it's really beautiful writing, but it's also getting at this meaning and, and, and beauty in life, like only has meaning because it's finite, you know, because it's fleeting. And that Um, is also, I think like Cole's. Uh, the stand-in in in this finale as the argument against the Red Forest, you know, where you kind of see Cassie have those moments where I, I need more time, 
And then now you have Cole making statements like the reason why sun, sunset is beautiful is it will, the sun is beautiful when it's because it's set. There's an ending. There needs to be an ending. And he keeps like iterating and reiterating that like things have an end and that's what makes it all beautiful. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm much better now, but um <laughs> <laughs> One down. Oh, man. We're not. Yeah. All right. Um, Let's get to the amazing trap that they set for Olivia. And how good does it feel that it is Jennifer who is the one who is now fucking with Olivia? Tell me all of your feelings about this scene when she drinks the tea and walks through the iconic, you know, the grass is tall to the house of cedar and pine to come face to face with Olivia. Tell honey, I'm home her. (laughs) Um, Man. So one of the things I love about this finale is just like you said with the, you know, here's the plan and you have these moments of levity and they are so perfectly timed. Like after that proposal could have been put at a different point in the story that it would have just made like the rest of it miserable. You know, but it's like, as soon as you get that over with, we're going to go do this like crazy thing. And because they have a character with the versatility that Jennifer has, they can do it. And she just goes and does like the most ridiculous shit that even like anybody would think of. And she is antagonizing the hell out of somebody who made her life hell, which I love. And she's doing it in her own little quirky ass Jennifer way, which of course is just pissing Olivia off even more. And it's like this time Jennifer finally has the upper hand and she can do all of this with the confidence that it's like getting her exactly where she wants. And I also like, I mean, yeah, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. I think part of the plan was for Jennifer basically to taunt Olivia to the point where Olivia would like take over, right? Like take over her body so that she could talk to Jones. And then they also, they could, they could have her see the code. Yep. So it's great because like, you know, Jennifer gets to go in there and just kind of like, basically like say, say all the shit to Olivia and treat Olivia the way that she wants to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then sort of goad Olivia into doing something that makes Olivia feel like she has control of the situation. You know, like obviously Jennifer wouldn't want me to take over her body. So if I do that, then I'm taking control of the plan, but that was actually right. the plan all along. Right. And it was totally set up in legacy when Jennifer didn't have her primary powers and drank the tea and then and then Olivia took over her body and that mm-hmm. fucked a lot of things up. And so it's like, you know, it's so not only is it just this like, you know, I, I feel like it's Jennifer Strikes Back part one <laughs> in yeah, this finale. Yeah. Um, but she also is like, you know, like that was a that was a fuck up uh, in legacy. And Jennifer mm-hmm. like learned from it and is like and has learned enough about Olivia that she is now able to like, there's a between Jennifer and Cassie who Olivia has individually fucked with both of them (laughs) throughout the whole series. They get really fantastic payoffs of like, they, they get like, they get their moment to like triumph over Olivia. And this is like, and what's beautiful about it, the way that Jennifer does it, not only here, but later, like throughout the entire finale, finale, she gets, she gets hers, right. Gets her revenge, her whatever, like gets Olivia back, slaps her down by being so unapologetically Jennifer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
She's not being anyone else except for Jennifer fucking Goins and watch <laughs> me take you down. It's amazing. And I think I think the great thing about it is that I thought about with how brave Jennifer is to do that because uh, like you guys said earlier, one of the first pods I did with you was the bodies of water for season two. And in that, that was um, Jennifer and Cassie, you know, finally kind of, I wouldn't necessarily say becoming friends just yet, but finally understanding each other. But also in that episode, they were both um, gaining their power back from Olivia controlling them. And Olivia, you know, really fucking with them and getting in their heads of through the tea and, and other means. And they both fought back and got their agency back. And this, yet again, how brave it is for Jennifer, given her past history with Olivia and her controlling her either through the tea and stuff like that, being like, okay, I'm going to willingly put myself in a position where I'm going to drink the tea. I'm going to go and toy with this person who's been my tormentor um, in very dark and awful ways and allow her to take over my body again in order to accomplish this thing. Like the pat, like the the strength and the braveness that it took for Jennifer to like rise to the occasion in that moment, both learn from her mistakes and dealing with Olivia, and then allowing that kind of loss of her agency again in order to help the team. Like again, that's just pure Jennifer. Just in that moment, she's she's brave, she's selfless, um, and it's just a really great moment that they put in the finale for her, and they yeah. will again in part two. Yeah, and, she's and, using her agency to agree to be violated. Right. Exactly. It's also not. Yes. It, yes. It's also. It's also not. Um, <clears throat> like, if you think about Jennifer's arc, I mean, you've got you've got the part of of being, and, and obviously they're tied to one another. But her her you know answering, rising to Ethan's call at the end of season three to, uh, of being like, you're the one who's going to figure this out. And figuring out what the what the code was, and and Jones misinterpreted it, and figuring out what the, what it meant, right? Um, but this scene, this scene isn't about her being primary or being the best of the primaries. It's it's just about like her being brave. Um, like as a she has superpowers, right? She's she has primary superpowers, but this is just about a woman being brave and confronting somebody who manipulated her. And made her do things that, you know, we know is not really who Jennifer is um, by exploiting her, like, childhood trauma. Um, so this and- is just a self-realized Jennifer coming into her own. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Realizing that she has the strength and the and the resources and the trust in herself to do this. Right. Yeah, she's not and, just the crazy one. And when that yeah. didn't work, now she's not just the primary. She's not just the seer. Like there's other things she can bring to the table yeah. and she's damn well ready to do it. Yeah. yeah. And everybody else trusts her too. You know, like Jones knows, like this is a plan. They're both sitting there. This isn't, you know, like Jones is is looking at her as a team member and an equal with skills that she relies on, you know? Right, right. Yeah. yeah and that's a, it's a big deal if that plan goes wrong. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yet, despite all of that, like, beautiful moment for Jennifer's arc, you have her, she's like, draws a fucking dick on the wall. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Is that because you're such a dick? Like, you know, for the fact that they took the symbol of the, like, you know, centuries-long conspiracy of the army of the 12 monkeys and, and drew it into a penis man is like, that is why I love this show. <laughs> because as seriously, as serious as all of this is, and as many times as we are likely going to continue crying throughout the rest of this podcast, that is, that is fucking hilarious. <laughs> and I can't believe that they did it, you know? Um, I just, this is for Joe. Um, I just love that Olivia got a moment again to see her girlfriend, Katrina, one last time there. So. <laughs> yes. Shout out. Oh, and oh, you know what? I, the thing that I noticed on rewatch, um, the way Emily Hampshire moves her body when she stands up is absolutely like channeling Allison down as Olivia. Yeah, it like that Allison Down got to do Jennifer and now she gets uh, Emily Hampshire gets to do Allison Down. I also feel like it's kind of a fun thing for the actors to be like, okay. Yeah. That is fair play. <laughs> you had that she had that thing the way she got up, it was like it was like a cat prowling. You yeah. Know, like the way it reminds me of like enemy when Olivia was like it, you know, in the enclosure, the way she moves her body. It was it's such a subtle detail and I didn't pick up on it until rewatch, but it's like so great. If you guys don't have anything else about that, I wanted to turn to this scene. Now I time of my life. I think my favorite part is before like they pick that song is Ramsey's reaction to country Western music is like my reaction to country Western music as well. <laughs> yeah. Like full body revulsion. <laughs> I, also, I like, also love the like, maybe some of our listeners are, are too young to remember those days when you used to like have to flip through the radio in the car. Right. Mm-hmm. And like that awkward, like, I like that cheesy song, but just the person I'm in the car with like that cheesy song, which I feel like is what's going on with Cole. Like, yeah. like <laughs> they, get, they get to I've had the time of my life and his face is a little bit like, uh, yeah. I secretly like this. Yeah. And like, I like yeah. it. Do you like it? Oh, I think yeah. he likes it too. I have to say, like, I have so much like respect and admiration for uh for Terry and all of the producers of this show that they had the balls to be like you know what we're going to set the like climactic event you know scene of this second to last episode that kicks off the culminating battle of the entire series it's going to be fucking time of my life and we're going to lead all the way into it. Like we're going to drive a car in, you know, firing a fucking like automatic weapon and then blow it up to I've had the time of my life. Because like, first of all, let's like, it genuinely takes balls. Like it takes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like huge brass balls to paraphrase Ramsey. Um, <laughs> to to make that choice, and also just like I remember the first time I or literally watched, to use that song at all, at all, yeah, exactly. In a way that's like simultaneously both 
a joke and not a joke. You know, it isn't, it isn't ironic. Right. It's not like we're sort of like, haha, tongue in cheek, look at us, but being like, like it's not, it's not ironic, although it is meant to be humorous, right? Um, and like the first time I watched it, I, I you know, I watched through the the finale episodes, I remember just like like my sheer delight when it happened, you know, because everything is so huge and so heavy, and there's like all this, like everything is at stake, and there's all this emotional weight to Cole and Ramsey being together and blah, blah, blah. And then just to like give us this moment of like levity. And I mean, there's just, there's also like, there's just something so human to Colin Ramsey sitting there basically being like, all right, here we go. Like, we're going to die probably right now, but definitely soon, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> like we're going to do this like completely insane and suicidal thing. And but let's you know, not forget have, this mixtape. <laughs> let's not forget like a, we need music and B we're going to have like a, a couple of awkward misfires and then see we're go- both going to be like, fuck it. Like this is a good song. Damn it. And then also yeah, just the- like the sheer delight of watching the scene set to that song. Like it is like, it's just delightful. It's just fun to watch. And I love, you know, in this era of like of peak TV, golden age of TV, which so often means TV shows that take themselves so fucking seriously Mm. And forget, like, the point of watching TV shows, not all the time, but a lot of the time, is to have some goddamn fun. You know, like, even when it's serious stuff, you're still watching it for entertainment, you know? So, like, in the middle of all this heavy stuff to be like, we're going to have some fun with this. I just, like, I love it so much. And it really just encapsulates so much of what I love about this show. And the beauty of that moment is how they like led into it with, like you said, the little misfires of like the Western music. Mm-hmm. Like, does your dad, what is your dad's taste? And he's like, he likes Western. Ramsey Country gives him that look. He's yeah. Like, and then they're like, and they're going through the radio and he's just like, come on, man, I gotta die to a good song, brother. It's the most and- Ramsey thing ever, you know? Like- and, they, and they hit that song. And here's the beauty of it. Like, cause you have the moment, like Aaron's talking about, which you're like, holy shit, the song to Dirty Dancing. This is yes. hysterical. This is hilarious. And then you're like, I'm going with it. Because you kind of have the same reaction that Ramsey and Cole do with it. Like, you know, wait a minute. I fucking love this song. Yeah. And you kind of <laughs> go with it. And then you listen to the lyrics of the song. And then I started to get emotional because yes. I'm like, yes. oh my Because God. they're so perfect like, for the those two. And I've never felt like this before. You know, like, yeah, like, it's like, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing this. This is hilarious. Wait a second. This is actually perfect. And then also like when the beat hits in that song, it's actually a really good song to have like a battle scene to, you know, like it's got some like movement. It's got some tempo. Like it just works. Legitimate beat drop to murder a bunch of people. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that caps it off more than anything that just truly gives it that icing on the cake is the look on Olivia's face. <laughs> <laughs> you like as a child of the 80s the fact that i watch a villain twice have be giving like a like either like the you know we're about to beat them you know like culmination villain speech or think that she is about to like you know that she's taken the time machine and both times she's interrupted by like the two seminal songs from my childhood and like two (laughs) of my favorite movies it was like 
I feel like I was waiting my whole life for that to happen, even though I didn't know it. (laughs) And I love, like, it also continues the kind of, like, theme of, of, like, trolling Olivia as they are attacking her like the yeah. whole plan like there's a plan there's like a like there's you know we got to shoot a lot of guns we got to kill some henchmen you know we got to fight but in addition to that we're just gonna troll the fuck out of her <laughs> so i think for great. me olivia almost represents because she's so super serious and it's like it's like what aaron was saying about like era of prestige television and it always being like it has to be grim and serious that's olivia Olivia's yeah. like Olivia's <laughs> television, and then here comes Cole and Ramsey, and they're like, "Fuck this! Have some fun! Like life is sh- like dark and gritty, but also you have to like laugh about it, or what's the fucking point?" Like, oh and it, it it leads Olivia's to like that prestige critic who's just like looking down her nose at everything. Like, <laughs> yeah, Olivia exactly. is that guy on Reddit. Olivia exactly. Is the guy on Reddit. <laughs> I'm trying as hard as I can to give you your shit ending, guys, and you're doing everything you can to fuck it up. Like, yeah. I could not be more grim dark if I t- I have like permanent black circles under my eyes. I have blood everywhere. Like, what more can I do to embody the grim dark ethos? And they're just oh like, God. I had the time of my life. Of my life. <laughs> oh my god this is my most favorite thing ever like olivia as the symbol of grimdark prestige television and, and, and cole and ramsey are 12 monkeys basically just be like we're gonna fucking blow that up with dirty dancing <laughs> oh, that's my favorite thing and then one of my i mean the show is filled with with pop references obviously especially like coming from jennifer but Honestly, one of my favorite and most solid references is right when they're about ready to like ditch the car and like blow it up. Paul looks over at Ramsey and says, "Give me your hand, Louise." Louise, yes. Alma yes. <laughs> so and Louise reference there. Like, there's so many good ones, and like Jennifer usually owns them completely. But I have to say that moment that was the most perfect pop culture reference in the entire show for me. It's not only like him being like. Give me your hand, Louise. Coming from Cole, it was just hilarious. But Ramsey's reaction to it, like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Because they're all and they're all. But the thing is, it's funny, but it's also perfect because they're two best friends in a car on a suicide mission. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) you get more like on the nose with your pop culture. It's so totally on the nose. Yeah. The other subtle thing that I love um, after they've blown up the car and they're standing there. And Cole's splinter suit shorts out. Like the first thing he said, he's like, well, what happened or whatever? And he's like, end of an era. And it's like, oh, right? Like it's the finale. It is the end of an era. And that's the last time we're ever going to see a splinter suit used, right? Like it's so meta. And then he like the other like little piece that I love is he goes, that's unfortunate. And that is exactly like what Ethan. Ethan. Yeah, that's exactly what Ethan said at the beginning of Thief when his splinter suit malfunctioned. And it's just like, oh, the attention to detail is just like, it's a beautiful thing. I have to give a shout out for a little because you know how I love character actors. Um, you had like written in your outline, like Olivia really should have listened to her advisor, huh? <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, like every fucking time her advisor said something, I'm like, yeah, that was actually solid advice. Maybe you should be the witness. Um, 
I just want to give it up to the actor who portrays the advisor, which was actually his name in the show, is yeah. Julian Richings. He's been in like so many 50 films and like 20 t- television series. This guy is like a character actor powerhouse. So give it up to Julian as the advisor. You were right. Good job, Julian. He's one of those guys where it's like, you, he, you know, he's a, oh, it's that guy. Actor, yep, exactly. You, know? you always recognize his face. His And his face, he has so many great, like, um, like, <laughs> like I, I'm sure all of us have had experiences at work where your boss is like, no, 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 do that. And you're like, uh, okay. Oh, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's his face, right? Um, and by, I mean, the thing that is so crazy is when you rewatch it, if she had just listened to him, Olivia would have won. Like, yeah. it, so it's like a really interesting, like, um, like what we've talked a lot about, like why Olivia fails. And, and one of the obvious reasons is like what Ethan said at the end of season three, because you're alone. Right. And she can't possibly, she's like, they don't have the numbers, right? Like how could they possibly beat us when they, when we have the numbers? Um, and obviously there's, there's some, numbers in the form of the West seven that she hasn't like understand as part of the equation. But like, it's also like she is making these choices, like the red forest, the thing that she has wanted and and her entire life's purpose literally has been for this is so close. She cannot walk away from it. Even if like what her advisor is saying, like actually is the right call. Yeah, her anger, her anger has taken over her ego. And and right now it's not, it's almost, it's not even about the Red Forest. It's just about winning. It's just about defeating them. Right. Because as she says later, she doesn't even have any use for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what Ethan said to her still applies though, because yes, even though she has people around her advising her, like Olivia is alone in her mind too. She doesn't listen to anybody else. She's going to make all her own decisions. She's doing it for herself. So, like, it's not even alone in the sense of, like, I'm the only one here, you know? Like, you're alone because no one is fighting with you and no one is fighting for you. Well, as if anyone is surprised, we were not able to fit both episodes into one podcast. So we will be back on a prime number, episode 53, to bring you the beginning part two. Till then, we'll see you soon.